it's awesome to be here. And um, I thought what we'd do is uh, we could start with a little bit of practice and then just jump into talking about um, the Dharma, yeah? And, and seeing what's up for us right now. What's, um, what's our edge with the Dharma right now? Uh, what I'm always interested in is sort of where the Buddhist path meets us in our lives. Uh, where does it meet us culturally, socially? Um, what's coming up right now, yeah? But at the same time, how do we connect that into a path um, that will actually liberate, the, liberate us? And what does that even mean to say <laughs> liberation from a Buddhist perspective, yeah? So um, I imagine this is a pretty mixed group. Uh, so maybe some of you are newer to practice. Maybe some of you have been studying Buddhism for a while. But either way, um, hopefully we can all come together as a community. Um, what I enjoy the most going around is that you know, we get to be a community for this next two hours. And so I just want to invite you to feel that in your heart. So just before we practice, um, I just want to introduce sort of a perspective which, we'll, which I'll draw on throughout the night and sort of elaborate on. Um, you know, meditation these days, I think, is a very confusing term. Uh, it really doesn't have much of a meaning anymore, to be honest, you know? Uh, let's see who's coming in. Welcome. This is Leslie. Hey, Leslie, welcome. <laughs> Come on in. So, you know, why do I say that? Why do I say meditation has lost its meaning? Because, you know, we have so many different ideas of what that could mean. You know, we can have our own personal ideas of what that means. I don't have an issue with that, right? That's perfectly fine. You know, in our, in our society and culture, that's generally prized. That's something that we can sort of take on and individualize. But here, within the Buddhist path, and talking about, like, where are we looking to reliability, and, and what kind of resilience are we actually looking for, right? And of course, tonight, I'm going to be talking about that from a Buddhist perspective, which is up for your investigation. It's not offered up as sort of... Uh, dogma or blind faith or belief, right? It's all for our own chewing and investigation. But when we sit down to meditate, um, you know, where we're aiming that practice can result in, in big discrepancies, right? Depending on where we're aiming that. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot like where we set the rudder of a, of a boat. And just setting a rudder slightly, you know, uh, uh, different than straight, over time, the boat ends up in a completely different place than we are intending to. So a lot of times, you know, and there's, there's no fault of yours or anyone out there, it's just we're not sort of taught these things, we're, it's not brought up of like, where are we actually aiming our meditation? What are we trying to do with it? And again, there's many goals out there, there's many ways. Um, in the Buddhist path, what we're actually trying to uncover is a process of awakening, a process of waking up out of uh, sleep, yeah, waking up out of Sometimes we call it, uh, in Tibetan we call it marikpa, which means, uh, can translate as ignorance, which can be a harsh word. But actually what this is more talking about is waking up out of dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. And I think we all can relate to this um, on some level or, or, or other, right? I mean, just from the unsatisfaction we experience uh, through getting sick and experiencing pain throughout our life, be it emotional or physical, all the way up to just in our daily life. There's small little oohs and ahs, right? So here we are trying to wake up not to disassociate from life, not to come to some other heaven from a Buddhist perspective, looking for some experience that's not now. But also if we're just cozy and cocooned into now, that's not helpful either, right? Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm implying by that, yeah? So what we're aiming for and hopefully I'll get more clear at this as I speak. I'm still waking up a little bit. Um, what we're aiming for in the Buddhist path is that our meditation actually creates a spark or a shift. Not that unlike uh, psychedelics, and this is maybe a controversial statement, but a psychedelic, you know, when we take a psychedelic, we experience a fundamental shift in identity. We experience a fundamental shift in perception and how we view ourselves in the world. The only problem is that shift doesn't last. And also that shift is another reality, right? So here when we meditate, we're not necessarily trying to have a psychedelic experience, but we're trying to shift this perspective that's causing the dissatisfaction. That's the root or, or uh, 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 underlying not knowing or ignorance 
of where all this dissatisfaction and un unsatisfactoriness comes from. So within that, we have to first come to the conclusion of what is this dissatisfaction? What is dukkha? You know, we use the Pali term dukkha, right? What does dukkha really mean? How does that show up in my life? If someone just tells you, oh, you're experiencing dukkha, that's kind of like, okay, dude, well, thank you. You know, thanks for telling me what I'm experiencing, right? That's not really what, what, what I'm talking about. I'm just, you know, as, uh, in Buddhist path and Buddhist teachings, we just open this up for discussion. And what I call this is a process of honestly looking, right? Because the Buddha asked, and you know, we'll dig into this tonight uh, as, we, as we go further. The Buddha asked in the First Noble Truth to know dukkha, right? And this word know, usually we associate it with um, the thinking mind, right? Quite commonly, and, and almost like culturally, uh, we're habituated to that, at least I am, right? So we have to look at our own experience. Uh, and so it's very difficult to take this word know into an embodied experience beyond just the thinking mind, into how knowing can be also a direct experience, right? So in Buddhism, when we talk about knowing, there's intellectual knowing, uh, like conceptual knowing, we could say. There's uh, inferential knowing, like knowing through a logical syllogism or, or logical uh, deduction. And then there's what we call in the dependent tradition a yogic direct perception. So knowing through actually seeing clearly, right? And so when the Buddha says no dukkha, it implies all of this. We have to use techniques to understand, right? Because mostly we're in our thinking mind. So we need the thinking mind as well. We're not rejecting the thinking mind. But if we only stay there within the thinking mind, then it's very limited, right? It has a very limited effect on our life. Because the thinking mind, the conceptual mind, also has a limit, has a, has an, uh, uh, hmm, yeah, has a limit. So what are we meditating for then? So one way we could say is we meditate to not only know dukkha, but we meditate on the path as the sort of remedy for dukkha. But it's a bit of a trick in the Buddhist path, I think. We're trying to know dukkha uh, and we're trying to remedy dukkha, but at the end of the day, Buddhism, what I think is so profound and what it's offering us through when we aim the meditation in, in a certain way, is not, we're not just creating a solution for a problem. We're actually trying to go beyond the problem and solution, which is a very unique perspective, right? And I'll, and I'll draw this out, right? Because normally we have in the world a problem and we create a remedy or a solution, right? And then normally that remedy or solution just creates another problem. And then it's like that in, you know, infinity. So right now, a lot of us are experiencing, you know, just myself included, maybe you aren't, but, but I am, uh, overwhelm, you know, just from the amount of media and it's like every shitty thing that happens in the world I, is at a click of a, you know, it's at, it's at a click of my button. And, and of course, my system is telling me that's more interesting information than the positive information, right? So they've proved this sort of biologically, we, we, we tend to go there to the, the negative information. So, um, so this overwhelm, uh, what we're dealing with, uh, sometimes becomes um, a way also to avoid and numb and not look honestly. Because it's easy to sort of look outwards. It's easy to sort of point a finger as opposed to look inwards to go beyond both the problem and solution, right? <coughs> so one perspective is that can we fix, you know, this Buddhism genu genu genuinely asked this question is, can, is the world fixable? And this is a very, very deep question and it's, it's hard, it's also controversial, it brings up a lot. Because how much of our energy is spent trying to fix something, right? And I'm not just talking about politically or bigger questions, even just like our sink or something like that. But the sink is impermanent. The sink will continually, the sink, as soon as it's built, it's meant to break down. Right? Whatever we're trying to fix. So essentially what the Buddha saw is we need to go beyond both the problem and the solution. And the path of meditation in Buddhism, sometimes we call it gom in Tibetan, which just means to familiarize the mind with a, an object of meditation. This path of meditation is the tool, right? Using practices of concentration and insight. So every practice comes into, uh, comes into those categories. And just like one si the side of one coin, the flip side to that coin is heart practices of developing boundless compassion and boundless love, right? But what are we, what's our edge we're working with here? I don't want to just answer it. I just want to sort of pose the question, and then we can talk about it throughout the night. 
what's the edge? What are we, what are we rubbing up against here? You know, are we just trying to develop a pleasant, sort of peaceful experience that's different than what we have now, or are we trying to to produce something that goes beyond the problem and solution? Yeah. So if if this is a bit vague, I'm. It's a little bit. I'm doing that on purpose just to set us up. But we're really thinking about this. Where are we aiming this? So meditation, from a Buddhist perspective, is to see clearly, is to become awake within our experience, which we can't search outside for something uh, uh, other than our experience. We're kind of stuck with it, you know, unfortunately. And even if we try our best to avoid and get out of it, we can't from a Buddhist perspective. You know, we are, we are stuck with it. Yet that experience is like water. So we have a phrase in Buddhism that, you know, water and ice are the same, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, that water and ice are the same material, but then it's just how we're experiencing that phenomena, right? So truthfully, our, our mind, our experience is like water flowing, but when we're not recognizing it as that, it becomes ice. So one of the ways, or the tools that serves to uh, recognize that flowing water again is the, this path of meditation, this path of uh, settling the mind through concentration practices and developing insight through vipassana practices, right? So without further ado, uh, maybe we'll practice. I didn't intend to say that much, but the idea here is to really think about like, what's going on in my practice? Am I just trying to find a cozy cocoon or do I really want to wake up? And there's no judgment on anyone in the room um, if, you, if you just need to relax and you need that cozy cocoon. I don't have any personal judgment against that. But what I, what I am also advocating is we should be clear of what we're doing, right? And also know that there is a deeper awakening we can have from the practice, yeah? So I'll guide us a little bit and then we'll go from there. Thank you so much. So um, before I jump into sort of um, more of a Dharma talk, I'm just curious if anybody had any questions about the practice or anything that came up for you or anything that may have been not so clear that I said that you'd like to discuss a little bit. How did it go for you? <laughs> Was it easy, hard? I love newbie questions, yeah. What do you do when your leg falls Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think part of it is finding a posture where that happens less. So um, I can't see how you're quite sitting, but um, if you can put one of your legs in front of the other and then find a right height on a cushion, usually it, it helps to get, keep the blood flow going a little bit more. When we put our legs on top of each other, um, it, it cuts off the circulation easier. So that's just one remedy before we start, right? Um, but if you have to move a little bit, it's fine. Um, within the practice itself, you can move your awareness practice to just working with the pain if you want to. Uh, just mindfully be becoming aware of that, being with that in the body. But if you have to pick your leg up a little bit and hold it, that's fine. Yeah. So there's nothing sort of, there's no like magic bullet. I mean, I, I'm, I've struggled a lot you know, with my big body and <laughs> trying to meditate over the years. And um, I mean, yoga, yoga, like physical yoga helps me a lot, but um, just sitting more and more, it also starts to open. But yeah. Can you see how I'm sitting? Th this posture may help you. If you can sit like, like that, it helps for the blood flow a little bit. So there's one leg in front of the other, right? Yeah. What do they, sometimes we call in Tibetan tradition, this is like a, kind of the posture of a bodhisattva. But there's another, in Theravada, do they have a name for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's Burmese. Yeah, I think it's Burmese. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, anyways, just if you want to Google it. Also, mermaids. I hate that name. Yeah. Yeah. Can you see her? Yeah. She's putting like one leg behind, right? Yeah. So just experiment a little bit, and if you have to move, you move. Just moving, move mindfully in the sense like. I think the main thing here is, um, 
know, sometimes we, you're not asking this, but it's just a sparking this for me. Sometimes we get so caught up in a, in a form and sort of like being so gung-ho about a practice, but really here what we're, again, I hope it's clear, what we're trying to do is develop that awareness uh, capacity. So if, if we need to move, become aware and just let that become a process for developing awareness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, during meditation I go into psychagogic states um, and that is not to me hallucination or thought. It's something else, it's automatic thinking. I'm always curious how teachers interpret that activity in terms of the practice and where it's, like where you're at in concentration when that happens. So can you define the word for me? Uh, uh, just think of things coming into your mind that aren't thoughts, like you're not yeah. thinking about, oh, I gotta take, you know, send this email. You're yeah. thinking thoughts, and you're not having a hallucination, you're not having like, second up trip, man. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's uh, there is uh, scenarios that are coming into your mind that you have no control over, um, wide variance of kinds of strange things, but you're not thinking. Right. Yeah, and you're and you're and you're aware of it, obviously, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. As though it were, you know how uh, in the practice when you were saying, open your eyes and watch what is happening in front of you, as though it were a movie. Mm -hmm. It is that kind of an experience. It's things happening in your mind that you're watching, as though you're watching. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, I mean, I would just call that. That's just the. That's just like the natural process of when we start to look inwards, because. You know, mostly we're, we're used to being caught up in, in those, you know, sometimes in the Tibetan tradition, um, there's not a word, there is a word for that, I forget it, but my teacher likes to talk about it as um, like the scrawl, you know, on, on news sites, how you have the scrawl at the bottom that's always going, and there's like the, the, the main theater, but then underneath it's that like underlying thing. So for meditators, that's, those are some of the harder experiences that takes more time to develop where the scrawl ends up resting at a certain point. But I would say it's not, it's not necessarily a huge issue. It's just, um, you know, because you're aware of it and it's just happening, it's just the, the natural flow of habitual distract, you know, distracted mind, like turning on a faucet. So then in the sense of, um, you know, there's one wonderful quote uh, from one Tibetan Buddhist Lama where he says, uh, you, you can't stop water with water. <laughs> You know, you have to instead just let the water flow, but become aware of that of that flow, right? So I think I think you're doing the. I don't have anything to add to your to your practice. I'd say I don't know. Um, I don't have a. I would say that means you're you're developing your some heat in your practice, in the sense like if you're able to be aware to the capacity where you can just see everything going through and you're not you're not uh, poking that. I like to use the word poking. You know, you're not. You're not messing with it. I was thinking today, I, I was talking to a, I do a lot of one-to-one -one men, meditation mentoring with people and there's one mentee on the phone today and I thought of like a, like our mind is like a hibernating bear. Actually, mostly it's like a bear in full, you know, full display, looking for honey, you know, mating, <laughs> raging, whatever, right? Uh, taking care of, you know, their young ones, like, so all these aspects, but a bear hibernating and then sort of like, we don't want to poke it, you know? So it's almost as we develop that awareness further and further, we're just working with a simple practice of not poking the bear, <laughs> you know, which would be this habitual mind. And so for a long time, the bear just snores underneath, right? Like there, there's that scrawl that passes, but as long as you're not poking it, I think you're fine, yeah. And then over time, that awareness will develop further and further, right? And again, I think I'm of the notion we can reach states of non-thought through concentration meditation, but I think that's not so much, um, we wanna shift into, into Vipassana at some point because we can get so obsessed, not you, but just, just again, riffing on a little bit, we can get sometimes obsessed with concentration of, of sort of like conquering the mind or conquering distraction. But like I said during the meditation, in, when we're talking ultimately from a Buddhist perspective of, of trying to work with and develop uh, an experience of anatta or, or not self, um, it, the distraction is only a problem in that it's preventing that. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, um, it's, 
developing that awareness to cut through to the nature of how something is, is really the main process here. Because it's not the thought that necessarily binds us. Uh, so there's a famous quote by an uh, Indian yogi named Talopa who said, um, it's not the, 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 the thought or the experience or the perception that binds us, it's the clinging. So we're trying to interrupt that clinging. And so settling the mind in concentration, having this experience you're talking about, can be, we need that. That's like the stepping stone, but that's not the goal per se. It's just the stone along the path to then cut the clinging, right? It seems to only happen to me actually when I'm not distracted. Yeah. It seems to only happen, you know, when I'm not dealing with a lot of thoughts, when my concentration is actually stronger is when it seems to happen. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it just means like you're developing some practice. Yeah, I mean, it's a good time, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, don't get too happy about it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's sort of like I, I've been playing with this experience lately because when I'm sometimes working in practice, like I'm obsessed now. Currently, where I'm at, you know, which isn't very <laughs> advanced, uh, which is a shame after all these years. But where I'm at is just really working with um, just this capacity of awareness to not reject anything, you know. But also, I'm like trying not to grab it either. So it's this space of just remaining mm, kind of with a non-judgmental awareness, not accepting, not rejecting, and then coming to it like almost like a curiosity within that, but it's not an intellectual curiosity. Just this process of trying to really see clearly, you know, what's going on, like, how is my identity? How is my attachment to that? How is my clinging to that? Is, is the identity that's appearing to me right now actually true, you know? And, um, yeah, that's what I'm really passionate about that right now. Almost like, almost like, a, uh, like an explorer <laughs> kind of attitude. That's kind of what I'm advocating uh, for us tonight. It's like, can we use meditation in a way to like come to that honestly looking and almost getting fanatical, although I don't like that word, but I'm sort of using it sarcastically, almost fanatical about um, uncovering like how are things actually existing? Right? Because we know how they appear. Like we all have our appearance. Uh, and, you know, the truth is right now, however many folks are in this room, we're, we're having similar human appearance, but, very, but most likely very different appearances individually. So which one is the right one? Like, just to prove a point, I could say, like, think of a cat. You know, just visualize in your mind a cat. What color is your cat? What color is your cat? Oh, kind of, it's like black. Yeah. So right there we have, whose who's, who's cat is, is the real cat? <laughs> you know, so again, this is like a simple example, but it, it proves to us that like, um, uh, there is, you know, which experience is true. So in, 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 in Buddha Dharma, we have a phrase we can use for this, which is, it's real in the sense like, you each can visualize your individual experience of, of what comes up for you in your mind when you think of cat, what visual experience comes, right? So it's real, it's happening, it appears to you, but is it true, you know? And really, the, when we cling to a truth here is when we usually get into trouble, right? At least from my experience, you're all welcome to explore that. So that's kind of the premise, is how do we challenge the fixation on a truth? And this isn't getting into like, I don't mean to say then there's like, uh, what do you call it? everyone can make their own truth and there's no, you know, like that kind of new agey gobbledygook. That's not what I'm saying either. It's more, we're trying to see for real, like, is the appearance that I'm currently experiencing, which also is producing suffering from a Buddhist perspective, is that true? And we have to see through that through Vipassana practice, right? It's the whole reason to turn the awareness on the mind. Otherwise, it becomes just like an intellectual game and it doesn't actually transform. It doesn't actually remedy the suffering or go beyond the problem and solution. Anyone else? Anything that came up for you? Was, was it harder with the eyes open? Yeah. In the back? Um, I don't know if this is uh, in the range of what you're looking for questions, but I don't think confident that this Yeah. I feel that I'm working, I'm working on both. They're both exciting and challenging. And 
Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. Um, I wanted to talk about that tonight, so that's perfect. So, um, analogy I really like to, to kind of explain the difference, and then we can talk about it experientially, like in the practice, is, you know, again, I already used this, this analogy of a, of a glass full of dirty water, right? And so, when we're practicing a concentration practice or a calm abiding practice of samatha or shamatha in Sanskrit and Pali, we what we're essentially doing is, you know, instead of the, our usual uh, habit of poking and prodding and, you know, carrying the glass around with us all day long and it's always muddy because we're always shaking it, right? So when we sit down to, with the breath, an object, or sometimes we have concentration practice without an object, which we might try later, what we're doing is essentially we're putting the glass down and we're just letting it be, right? meaning we're letting the mind be in its natural state, but we're also using an object of practice to bring our attention in the present moment because it's so used to being hijacked by the thinking mind into the past, into the future, right? Ruminating in both. So here after some time, when we leave the, the, the glass alone, the dirt will settle, or the mud will settle to the bottom, and then we can start to see the clear limpid quality of the water inside, right? But the problem if with this practice only, right, um, is that our, our anyone, uh, including our roommate, can come over and just poke it anytime, right? And shake up the water again. So this is where in, in Buddha Dharma we would say there's some meditators who achieve a state of like really focused concentration. You know, apparently this is this can happen, where you know someone could stay meditating for weeks, months on end. If, if you, anybody been to the Kumbh, Kumbh Mela, or heard of what Kumbh Mela is? Anybody know? Nobody? It's a cool documentary on YouTube about it. It's the largest gathering of like uh, yogis in, in India, and they, they create. It puts Burning Man to shame. They they, they create like uh, the largest city uh, in in the world for that period of time, right? Wherever they gather, and. Um, so in the Kumbh Mela, you'll get these, these great um, Vedic yogis who they'll, they'll put them underground, meditating in concentration. And um, the breath stops, the heart stops, uh, but they're not dead. And then they just remain like that in that concentrated state. But any time, someone could come poke, you know, and then, again, the mud gets kicked up. So the Buddha, like if we just look at the life story of the Buddha, right? Um, you know, the, the Buddha, when he left the... Uh, is there anyone, anyone who doesn't know the story of the Buddha? Because I'll, I'll say more info. Anyways, <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, forget it. Um, so the Buddha, when he left the, the kingdom, right, to seek the mendicant life, to really strive to attain awakening, he first came into contact with a lot of ascetic practices, really working to kind of subdue the body, subdue the mind into, into submission, you know? A lot of them are working with this settling practice. Now, on the Buddhist path, this is a stepping stone. But what the Buddha eventually saw was this isn't enough, because at any point, this can be disturbed. So what he was interested in is, how do I uproot the mud itself? How do I, you know, after this is settled enough, because like I said, that's a good stepping stone for most of us, because usually we're, we have so many thoughts and so many distractions, it's very difficult to go directly to uh, insight practice. So, what the Buddha then discovered as he sat under the Bodhi tree was this practice of insight, uprooting the mud itself. And so this practice is connected with the, the third characteristic of anatta, right? So we have these three characteristics. Uh, in Mayana, we had a fourth, but in general in Buddhism, of anicca, right, impermanence, uh, dukkha, or dissatisfaction, and then anatta, of not-self. And anatta is a very difficult one to, to grok, right? It's, it's not an easy thing. It, it takes a lot of study and understanding as well as practice over time. But really, this third characteristic um, is what essentially liberates us. Because again, I've been pointing it out in different ways, which is fundamentally we have to have that shift through practice that the identity, the construct that we're clinging to is real but not true. Just like this, just like we can all imagine a cat, and we are imagining a cat, but, but what's, is there a universal truth within that, right? So when we sat tonight and we 
watch the breath, right? In, 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 some, in some practice traditions, they're doing a unified shamatha vipassana, so the, force, the Thai force tradition, uh, that's generally how it's, it's practiced, I believe, right? So um, in Tibetan Buddhism, we also, in the Mahamudra tradition, we have some combined things. But generally, I separated them just because we're all learning here together. We're all practicing together. So the first one is just coming to a settled state through the breath, which is the most common meditation nowadays, right? But we're coming to that settled state not to relax and check out and avoid and get into some cozy little meditation space. We're coming so that the dirt can settle enough the thoughts, emotions, all the discursiveness and distraction can settle enough then to apply this Vipassana practice where we sat with our experience and just watched. Now there's many different kinds of Vipassana or practices of insight in Buddhism. Um, there's not just one, uh, there's many. Um, I find this one to be a simple one and a more accessible one. And we're not poking, we're not prodding, we're just letting the mind watch itself. Right? And within that, over time, what we start to find is some space. So maybe it, it was too brief to find that now, but we'll do a little bit more at the end. And what we can start to have is small glimpse, glimpses of that space between the experience of the mind and the clinging. And as that clinging, it's like a little bit like the glue starts to become you know, loose. It's not so tight anymore. It starts to unglue a little bit. And within that spaciousness, that is the proof within that, as you all practice, which you have to prove to yourself, of course, that we can liberate ourselves, right? Even if we just get that small taste, that small space of, ah, oh, okay, there is an experience I'm having. So Ajahn Amaro, I love, I mean, I still think it's one of the best phrases where, it's, you know, right now it's like this, right? That's another way to say that, where right now, we're having an experience, and we, we're not denying that, we're not dissociating from that, yet we can start to have some space between this sense of self and the experience. So that would be the difference in the practices and what we're doing. And it is subtle, like you pointed out, because we still need concentration in this insight practice, the second type, but it's a little different because we're shifting from becoming focused and attentive to one object to actually just watching, right? So sorry for the super long answer, but I'd like to be thorough. So that, that's my problem. Sometimes I'm too attached to being thorough. So keep it coming if that wasn't clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Just make a comment. You touched on this a lot already. I'm relatively new to meditation, but just the difference between kind of passive versus active. So actually just the way you described it kind of flipped it in my head because it almost seemed like the concentration, I guess the concentration meditation was a little more active. Yeah. And the insight meditation was a little more passive, but not, you know, not all or nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess for someone that's new, that's used to just, you know, pay attention to your breath. Yeah, uh, yeah. And just watch what happens. Uh, to, to hear that there's more going on, I think, is it's good. Yeah. It's helpful, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to point out, there are insight practices <clears throat> that are more, more active. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, we'll use the conceptual mind to exhaust the conceptual mind. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha in some sutras said it's like, the stick of the intellect rubbing against where we're investigating. Ah, oh, okay, where's, where can I find some permanence within the body? And we really investigate for a permanent place where the body is, is there definitively, right? And so it's like rubbing one stick against the other. And then over time, they both catch fire and burn into non-concept, yeah? So that's a more active insight or Vipassana practice. But um, really this one I showed, and we'll, again, we'll do more of it, um, in some opinions of some masters, that's all we need, actually. And I'm not sure, I'm still testing it. Because I'm one of the people, I'm like uh, a doer, so I need all kinds of stuff to do. And, you know, Tibetan tradition, is, is anybody familiar with Tibetan Buddhist tradition? Like, has anybody studied it a little bit? And, no? It's full of a lot of bells and whistles, I'll just put it that way, yeah? And those bells and whistles uh, are useful, too, once you get to understand why they're there and what the essence of the, the path is, yeah?
but yeah, so that, no, that's a good that's a good observation. And um, I think when we're working, you know, I want to point something out too, which is in Buddhism when we're working with an object of concentration or an anchor like the breath or the body or whatever, it is more active because like we're not finding that cozy autopilot. You know, and it's, you can start to see why it's very different than a, than a practice of mindfulness for stress relief. Not, not discounting that is useful, right? It's just all about where we're aiming that rudder, right? And so what I usually tell people who are interested in the Buddhist path, aim for, aim for the, the more long-term resilience we get from the practice, and you'll get, by the way, you'll get stress relief. That's easy. That comes. That's not hard. But, you know, in a way, it's like, I have to ask this, not just you, but the whole room is like, has it worked out for us to just seek temporary means to, for peace? In the sense of like, has it worked out to always have this kind of commodified relationship or conditioned relationship with always needing something to fix our experience? Now, this, you have to think about this, but personally, it hasn't worked out for me that well, you know? I still get headaches after the, all the Advil I've taken, right? And of course, temporarily, we need, we need things, you know, of course. I'm not saying don't take medicine if you need medicine. That's not what the, the question is. It's more sort of looking to this ultimate perspective and this more long-term goal of like, what's going to really provide resilience for us from a Buddhist perspective? Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Keeping, yeah. keeping more obligation, you know, you're just making more distraction. Yeah. Say that again in a different way, because I don't understand. But well, you know, what we do to soothe ourselves, um, you know, like if I feel like I need to meditate to yeah. feel better, then meditation becomes in itself a chore, and um, you know, it, it's not it's not something positive. It's just trying to soothe the negative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is what I find the rub for us, and it's so difficult because, um, I mean, you're welcome to challenge me on this, but because um, it's just a, it's a working hypothesis I have, but neoliberal capitalism makes it really difficult um, for us because it's almost in our bodies. It's not just how we behave economically. It's sort of like how we're structured within the world where it's, Normally, as human beings, we live in a conditioned way. That's just anyone, whatever system they're in. But in our particular system of, of economics and ways of being, um, it adds on even more conditioning on top of that. And so a lot of us just have, walk through life with a lot of hollowness, and then we're just continuously feeling that. You know? I usually fill with ice cream. You know? That's my filler. But it doesn't work. <laughs> it just melts. <laughs> So, you know, so that's kind of like our own cultural, for maybe not all of us in the room, but, but some of us, uh, that's our own cultural um, burden to work with, you know? And so it makes it harder because then, again, we can see the meditation world just gets co-opted and, and sort of chewed up and shit out, right? Because then, it, it, let's be honest, in, in five, ten years, um, and again, I'm not trying to be like rude. I, I, think the, I think mindfulness has a nice purpose, right? I think it's really helpful also to reduce the suffering of others. Like if we can have less stressed out people, that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, when it's part of a system uh, of neoliberal capitalism, it becomes just, just another thing that'll be shit out again in 10 years. Oh, this didn't work. Moving on to the next thing, right? So fundamentally, we have to look at that, right? And I'm not trying to bum anyone. I'm not trying to bum you guys. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, because... Yeah, yeah, that's another way to put it, the Dharma Industrial Complex. And so, and so we have to come into this, you know, if we really are interested in freedom and awakening, we have to really look at what the, what the Buddha taught, you know, and that's what I'm constantly looking at and in the context of my own body, my own conditioning and how it shows up, you know, how I show up in the world. Um, and so we're moving from this kind of like, Sure, understanding systems and uh, undoing oppression is, is, is extremely useful, but ultimately, then that has to come down to how um, that shows up in our own mind, in our own way of being, or what I like to say these days, our own stance, yeah? Because a stance is a physical thing, but almost, I don't know about you all who are long-term meditators, for me, when 
I'm really identifying with an emotion or really identifying with a sense of uh, who I think I am in that moment, it's like a stance that feels so strong and real. You know, it almost feels like a body on top of my body, right? So it's hard to put this into words if, if for some of you who are newer to practice, but when you start to look, when you start to become, watch and become aware of that experience as we start, start to have some meditative ability, there's something magical there where we start to see that the identity is much more fluid and flexible than it appears, right? And that's that fundamental shift that I'm talking about where some of us have had it through psychedelics, but that, that doesn't last is the problem, right? And it's not really a, 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 such a um, useful way at the end of the day, my opinion, right? You're welcome to challenge me on that. But as we develop this, this natural awareness, our capacity to watch, to become uh, an inner being in this sense, some magic starts to happen there, yeah? And it's hard to talk about that. It has to come out of your practice, yeah? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you could speak to motivation, like, you know, maybe intellectually we can hear all of that and understand it. But how do we get to the point where we're like, okay, I'm ready to go live in Tibet for nine years? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a super good question. Um, I would say, um, just, to soothe, you know, just to make it clear, you, you don't have to go to Tibet for nine years. You also don't have to become a monk or nun um, for nine years. It's a useful path, right? Like, for me, it was quite useful, mainly because, you know, as a monastic, we're, we're adhering to certain boundaries. So it's like putting a fence in front, and you say, I'm not going to go past that fence. And that seems like a prison to most people, but in actuality, it's just a way to turn back and you have to look at the experience. You have no choice. Because, you know, for me as a monk for nine years, um, all, kinds of, all kinds of shit comes up. And a lot, you know, mostly as a monastic, you're working with your attachment, attachment to food, the body, uh, clothes, uh, intimacy, uh, romantic relationships, uh, sexuality, right? And it's never denying that. It's just putting a boundary so you could look at it. And, and see it clearly. And this is one of the harder parts also within, within society right now is like we're taught that we can have anything we want and we should and it's like our human right, right? And then therefore we can endlessly create personalities. We can endlessly create identities. And then, you know, systems of whiteness make that even more prevalent, you know? Because as a cisgendered white male, personally me, you're all welcome to investigate this, um, I didn't have a culture, you know, to, to, to be in, just a set of privileges. So then that's another system on top of it. So it's very tricky. But anyways, what was the main part of your question? Because <laughs> I went off in a sidetrack. Um, well, no, I mean, I think that speaks a lot to what I'm curious about, which is, um, you know, like I, I can be like, hey, today, like, I'm really motivated. I really want to, like, practice and, and, you know, get better at understanding my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if it's just a matter of like applying practice regularly and working on concentration or if there's, um, yeah, I, I guess if you personally have had other like moments or like things that have inspired you to. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's really this process of chewing on the Dharma like I was saying earlier. And so we chew on the Dharma in three ways. Um, and it sounds funny to say chew on the Dharma, but I, I mean that because that's a very like embodied way, uh, I, I think, to describe it. Um, we listen to the Dharma, we study, we contemplate it, and we meditate on it. And, so, and then, we, and then we, we apply some ethic or mm, discipline to that which is just showing up every day in some capacity doing that. And just like anything else, it's like training in a habit, you know? So our, it's, I think in one way it's quite simple and practical. We're like, of course, our, our, if we're normally just not training to be aware and to be aware of our thoughts, aware of our emotions, our, our natural habit of just distraction is going to continue. So what we're actually, another way to say what we're doing here is trying to interrupt that 
And, we ha and interrupting it once is not enough, or interrupting it once a week at a class is not enough. We have to eventually, if we become passionate about uh, uh, chewing on the Dharma, we have to um, dedicate to a daily process of interruption. And so interrupting the habits that are, that are producing suffering or, or help, you know, just causing us to dwell in, 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 in dissatisfaction. And so I think as, as uh, householder practitioners, you know, non-monastics, and you know, I'm, I'm fresh, out of the <laughs> fresh out of the robe, so now I'm back in the householder role, is um, we really have to become passionate about integrating that into the day as much as possible. And so whatever, whatever we develop on the cushion, like even just tonight, whatever awareness came, bring that in. And it's just, we're gonna do a practice before we end of short moments many times which I think can be very helpful, because sometimes we have this idea that, oh, I, you know, if I can't do, oh, I don't have time to meditate, I don't have 30 minutes or 40 minutes. No, you have 30 seconds. We have to try, right? So when we listen to the Dharma and study it, and we learn some tools, and then the view backing that up, then we can apply that to contemplation and meditation. And meditation doesn't have to just be quiet on a cushion, right? So I think it's developing the passion for that, but that passion also comes from really chewing on this first noble truth of knowing dukkha. Because if we don't know dukkha in all its facets, from grosser dissatisfaction like sickness, old age, and death, all the way down to just that first bite of ice cream, which feels so pleasurable to me, it actually has a quality of, of dukkha or dissatisfaction. But you know, if I just tell you that, it doesn't help. It has to be seen. So. Um, so that's why I think the Buddha was so skillful in, in, in pointing that out in the First Noble Truth. And, and that's a, it's a tough job because, I mean, it kind of interrupts our fun a little bit, to be, you know? Like, we, we all want to have fun, you know? And we have so many tools of distraction and avoidance. So you have to kind of develop this uh, 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 passion for, okay, what's really reliable here? You know, so often for me, refuge in the, in, the, in the triple gem, in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it's not really so much a religious dogmatic practice for me anymore after about 20 years of practice. It's really just like, what am I going to rely on here? You know, am I going to continue to rely on, on distraction, meaning this habit of mind? Am I going to rely on uh, 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 impermanent objects as ultimately satisfying me? And, you know, once you look and then you're burned enough, it's just like that partner who you love and you're so attached to, but they're just fucking it up over and over. And you, it's not healthy anymore for both of you, right? So we have to break up with our suffering at some point, right? It's tough, it's challenging. So that's why this isn't, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not a quick thing, you know? And, and that's what's, I think, challenging because um, some of us will just quit because we, we, it, it, it's too, um, it takes time. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense, more or less, yeah? So let's practice a little bit more, yeah? I think my, my talk, everything I want to say tonight is actually coming out of the question and answer, so I think it's nice. So we could practice a little bit more and then do a little bit more discussion if you guys like. So thank you all for your practice. So maybe we started to get a glimpse here of maybe a small mini shift, the space where we don't modify, we remain with awareness, and then an opportunity for the glue to unstick, yeah? Some of you starting to experience that a little bit? Taste of that, yeah? I want to say one thing about that too, which is one of the reasons I continually fall in love with Buddhism uh, in the sense of, uh, not from a religious perspective necessarily, but from the perspective of, of the tools and practices it presents and the path it presents to come back to this basic nature as what we just did is not, it's, it's yours, right? I, I, hope, I hope that's pretty obvious, right? Nobody owns that. That's yours, 
That's your awareness <laughs> of your mind, of your own sentience, right? Your own experience. And it's accessible to you at any time, right? If you practice it and you, and you work with it. Um, no religion owns that. No other being owns that. And that to me, uh, that process and spaciousness that comes out of that and that freedom of unsticking, knowing that my identity is actually open-dimensional, right? It's not fixed. It's not one thing. It's not necessarily when I'm in... It's not who I am when I'm in a shitty mood. It's not who I am when I'm in a good mood. It's just happening to me. I'm just experiencing that. And that's not a, there's not a coldness or a dissociation or an avoidance to that. It's warm, fresh, right? And so one of the ways we can kind of know that our Buddha nature is starting to, that, that, that seed is starting to sprout within us, right? Is that this awareness and this insight into our nature, uh, we start to experience a warmth to that. And within that freedom, our boundless compassionate heart starts to peek out. And these qualities of love that's not conditioned start to peek out more and more. Yeah? And it's hard to explain that because they're not, it's not a process of reaching out in some conditioned way where my fixed identity is somehow uh, uh, helping, serving someone else's fixed identity. It's very free and flowing. It's a very different process than normally how we function with compassion and love in the world. And relative compassion and love are wonderful and they're useful and we also need to develop those. It's, I'm not saying don't do that, right? But they're sticky. They're very sticky. They're also unreliable, yeah? Because when compassion and, and love are devoid of wisdom or don't have this spark of inner insight, we don't know where they're, what, what, the, what they're going to produce. We don't know what we're going to end up with. We have so many situations like this in the world right now where we're putting out so much effort, so much worry and stress trying to fix all of the, plug all of these holes in the ship. Yeah? But the ship, it's always been sinking. It never was not sinking. Right? And there's, and, and, and so, and that sounds kind of dark and depressing, but actually there's a quality where as we practice awareness this way and we chew on dukkha or this nature of dissatisfaction in this way, we come to a broken heart. But that broken heart doesn't break down. And there's a big difference between a broken heart or a heart that breaks open for the world and bears witness to the suffering of the world and a heart that breaks down. There's a big, big difference. And so what I, why, what I advocate here for is and not a cold awareness here. It's an awareness that remains open to others and the world. Uh, and a heart that's always breaking. There's a quote I want to read to you, which pretty much sums this up. Um, it's by a Tibetan Buddhist master, um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who's, who uh, for some is a, is a controversial figure, but um, whatever you feel about him, his books and writing and teaching was amazing, really, truly exceptional and different. Uh, this was a, an individual who was able to speak and write about the Dharma uh, where his words, you can feel them in your body, you know? They're poetic, but yet they speak real depth uh, uh, of Dharma. And so, um, at least that's my opinion. So I like to share this quote with everyone. So he said, Awakened heart comes from being willing to face your state of mind. The sitting practice of meditation is a means to awaken this within you. When you awaken your heart, to your surprise, you find that it is empty. If you search for your awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel, and feel for your heart, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the world, you feel tremendous sadness. It is not the sadness of feeling sorry for yourself or feeling deprived. It is a natural situation of fullness. The genuine heart of sadness comes from this feeling that your non-existent heart is full. Your experience is so raw, tender, and personal that even if a tiny mosquito lands on you, you feel its touch. There's a lot here, actually. Yeah. For those of you who study Buddhism uh, for a while, 
you can see the whole Buddhist path is actually within this quote. It's very, very, very deep. Because he's actually talking about the experience of, of awakening, which isn't a cold, reserved avoidance. It's fully awake, yet seeing illusion for illusion, or dreamlike quality for dreamlike quality, or real but not true. At the same time, it's full of tenderness and compassion for the suffering of others and the suffering that we experience, right? So, um, that's all I got. <laughs> so uh, we have about 10 more minutes if, if you guys want to dialogue a little bit more. Anything came up for, for you in the practice you want to discuss or just any of the content from tonight? Yeah? Can you just say that uh, phrase again that you said earlier or something like um, just this moment now? Or what you said it was, it's right now it's like this? Right now it's like this. Yeah. It's this is, really yeah, it's kind of a popularized now by against the stream community, but it's Ajahn Amaro who said it. Oh, it was Sumedho who said it. Oh, someone attributed it to Amaro. Are you sure it's Sumedho? Yeah. Okay. Sumedho was Ajahn Chah's student. It's really Ajahn Chah just would say it's like this. Got it. And he added on the right now. Yeah. That makes sense. It's that actually makes sense. It's Sumedho. <laughs> now that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's it. Right now it's like this. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe back there, and then I'll come to you. Yeah. The second thing is that um, in response to the, uh, the talk about um, the connection or difference between concentration and insight and the passive and active meditation, um, I wanted to offer a method of meditation that I picked up in some book, I don't remember which it was, but um, you focus on two parts of your body, for example, you might focus, you concentrate on your left thumb and your right thumb, and then you just, you're laser focused on that part of your body, but then you allow, um, you allow without choice which thumb you're gonna focus on, whether it's your left thumb or your right thumb, and it kind of offers a bridge between fo uh, focus and the choiceless awareness, because in the I find when I just try to uh, try to do the a broad awareness yeah. like that that I just I don't have totally yeah no yeah that yeah I've heard of that 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 is Goenka tradition they teach that practice do you guys know I've heard that it's coming from the Theravada tradition that practice but yeah that's why I think generally you would start with the first foundation of mindfulness. This practice is actually in the Tibetan tradition. The one I share with you all is a little bit one way we practice the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Tibetan tradition. It's one way to practice it. Um, but you would have... Yeah, so like you have mindfulness of body, feeling, mind, and dhammas, right? Uh, so then this mindfulness of dhammas or dharmas would be this fourth one. And, and, and then there's many ways to practice that mindfulness of dharmas. There's also like step-by-step -step process of that as well, working with the aggregates, you know, all, all these different things. But um, so the most, for most people as a beginner, you'd start with mindfulness of body for that very reason, because it's like something directly, you know, you have something to work with, right? Yeah. So that's perfectly fine. I just like to, uh, I like to mess with people. So <laughs> no, I'm just joking. No, I, I like to introduce this one because it's like sort of... Um, it can move us into, um, for those who have the proclivity for this, that particular practice I showed, it can move us into a kind of non-doing where um, experience of anatta can develop quick, quickly, or quicker, I should say, maybe, depending on the person. You know, we usually say we have a lot, you know, 84,000 gateways to dharma for 84,000 delusions, <laughs> meaning like, you know, for all of us in this room, uh, the essential dharma doesn't change. These qualities of the view of anicca, uh, dukkha, and anatta, that doesn't change. That's the view we base the path on. But then our access points to the path and what we need to develop personally, those may shift. Though usually within a tradition, they all start you at the same place, right? But anyways, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Sorry, just rambling on. <laughs> Me, <laughs> yeah. 
physique kept coming up for me, like, am I doing this correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there a way to be like an internal check-in to where I could be like, okay, yeah, my glass is settled enough and now I can like move on to the, the next phase? Or like, but your adequacy in both practices or the, the first one or the second one? Or? The first one. The first one? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky thing and because uh, as far as concentration goes, different traditions will have different bars you're setting. You know, like for instance, Theravada, you're going to go through the absorptions. Tibetan tradition, we don't focus on those so much. But there are nine stages of calm abiding within the Tibetan tradition. So some would say you do that until you have full pliancy of body and mind, <laughs> which is like... Well, it would come through study, right, and, and a relationship with a teacher. Um, and, and, and you'll, you know, pliancy of body and mind is when uh, it's a very advanced experience. That's why we're laughing. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to develop. So, but I think for most of us, um, it depends because in the in the schools um, I study in now, which is a, like Nyingma tradition and, and sometimes in the uh, Dzogchen tradition within that, the Vajrayana tradition, we would gain some semblance of concentration. So not full, fully going to pliancy, but some semblance to um, not be distracted. And then you move into Vipassana, or Vipassana primarily. It seems like a forced tradition, they kind of combine it quite early on, combine shamatha and Vipassana. So yeah, there's no, there's no one way. I, that's why it's so hard to answer you. But I would say um, when you are able to watch your experience, just how we were doing, without um, too much of a fight, like you can watch the thinking mind, then you can watch the thoughts move just like you would watch a sky and watch the clouds move through. You probably have a decent amount of concentration. Yeah, but that's just my crappy answer. Don't take that on. Yeah, talk to a genuine teacher, you know? <laughs> Anyways, yeah, some food for thought. Yeah. It's a good question, yeah. But generally, most of us, we kind of do both for a while, you know, because we're, we're all just working on the path here and we do both. We'll work with some, some concentration practice and then some insight practice. Yeah. Got maybe time for one more. If anybody has anything? If not, we can just close. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, um, I usually like to close with just a short dedication, just like we motivated. So this is. Um, Usually we have this, this word merit, which is an awful English translation <laughs> for what it really represents, but I'll explain it a bit. So um, what we're doing here is that all of the effort we put in tonight um, to listening, contemplating, and meditating on, on the Buddha Dharma with this intention to move into a, a service of sentient beings and our own awakening as a, uh, a development of skillfulness in that service, right? So here we kind of seal it. So feel free to close your eyes coming into the body. And so all of that effort, all of that energy we put into tonight, we aim it again and seal it that we may not just reduce, but help others through our own process of awakening and serve them to eliminate suffering. Help them along the path. And all of that awakened energy, whatever we touch tonight, no matter how small we think it is, we're going to imagine that as inexhaustible, boundless, emanating from our heart as white light, if you'd like, like another color that's fine too and first this light expands like blowing a bubble filling the room here and touching each and every one of us and here we're sharing the quality of our effort we're sharing the qualities of whatever ripple 
that produced, just like throwing a rock in a pond. And as it fills the room, it touches your neighbors, offering the qualities of awakening, peace, elimination of suffering, all the qualities of enlightenment. And that light continues to expand as our own individual lights start to form into a collective light, now filling the block, city, expanding into the state, moving out into the Pacific Ocean, filling North, Central, and South America. And along the way, each beingness is touching. It's eliminating all of their pain, suffering. Whatever their needs are, they get fulfilled. And most of all, this light awakens them to their own nature. The nature of anatta, not self. And this light continues to expand across the world, completely filling the entire world and then radiating out, filling the universe, inexhaustible, boundless, no end, no beginning. And if you manage to touch that spacious quality of this merit we're dedicating, just rest in that for a moment in your experience. Just resting in the spaciousness of mind. <clears throat> 